an extraordinary development just takes a person to really care about it. Let's not make it cookie cutter. Let's not make it basic. But how can it really be curated for that neighborhood? Small businesses are the backbone of the American economy and here in Michigan. But only 50% will make it five years in business. On Mitten Money, host William Zank will focus on helping Michigan-based business owners with the tough questions that will help them succeed. How do I expand my business? What options do I have for retirement? How do I move forward? Having worked with small business owners throughout his entire career and with excellent attention to detail and strong analytical skills, William Zank of TriStar Trust will unearth answers to these questions and more. You can subscribe to the podcast and learn more about how William and the TriStar Trust team can guide your small business at TriStarTrust.com. Good morning, good afternoon, and welcome to another episode of Mid Money. On today's show, we invite Jenna Costa on the podcast, who currently runs her own real estate development company. We learn how Jen has been able to sustain her success across multiple projects throughout mid-Michigan, while also being recognized as a community leader. We also chat about middle missing housing, what it is, and why it matters so much to a community. So welcome, Jen, to Mitten Money. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for coming on. So you have quite the education background with degrees from Southern Illinois University, University of Miami, and a graduate certificate from NYU. So it would have been easy for you to start your career in any big city. So why'd you choose mid-Michigan? So first and foremost, you know, my family's here. So when my husband and I started a family of our own, we decided that moving back to Michigan was the best choice. In retrospect, he and I often talk about how moving to Michigan gave us the opportunity to both start our companies that we would have never been afforded in a big city between kind of cost of living and even especially for me, like real estate, in order to be able to invest in real estate, the amount of equity that that requires in a larger metropolitan area compared to the Rust Belt, Lake Belt cities is night and day. So for us, it's really funny because just the opportunity is so different. I worked for a real estate development firm in Miami. Had we stayed, I would probably still be you know, working in that realm in some way or in local government. However, when I moved here and I wound up deciding to do my real estate development certificate from NYU, I would have professors calling me all the time and saying like, and I put together a case study because I did all of my work on my first projects. So I used my actual projects as my case studies through that degree. And they would call me and say like, but this requires all of this additional work and this additional like gap financing. And why would you do this? <laughs> I'd say, but does it work and help me strengthen it? And they basically would say, you know, you could move somewhere else and do this work without all of this other entanglement. And It was like they were calling me a masochist, but it's the best possible thing that we could have done. And and I'm so grateful to be here and doing the work that I love. Well, that's great to hear. So diving in a little bit more about mid-Michigan, you touched upon some of the unique or hidden gems that our area offers that maybe other metro areas don't. Do you mind touching in upon some of like the unique things that is specific and only can happen in mid-Michigan? Well, I think, you know, real estate can happen anywhere, right? The beauty of mid-Michigan, I would say, is our people and our community framework. It really was eye-opening moving here because it is so different than Miami or a big city. Being that, you know, the people really care. There's manners here. I remember when we first traveled here, my husband, who's born and raised in Miami Beach, we had walked into a bank and he was like, 
babe, babe, did you hear that? Did you hear that? And I was like, what? And he was like, I held a door open for that lady. And she said, thank you. And I was like, what? Okay. He was like, that hasn't happened to me in years. <laughs> like He was so blown away. And I think about that often because, you know, there's such Midwestern hospitality and kindness and our community is smaller. So you can do a lot more because we're a team and we really collaborate and we really work together and we have to, right? No one's going to necessarily swoop in with a bunch of capital and make all of these things happen. We have to kind of be scrappy together and and come together and collaborate. And if we want to have these things in our community. And so when you initially came back to mid-Michigan, did you have a plan or a project in mind that you wanted to go embark on as kind of like the first maybe development project? I mean, can you take me through what was going through your mind for trying to select a, maybe it was a property or some type of development in a city? Like, what was that thought process like? All right, so I'm going to go look into commercial buildings that are less than 2,000 square feet. I'm going to go try and find maybe a commercial building with an apartment above it. I mean, what was that thought process It was non-existent, I would say, in the beginning. Typical like entrepreneur, like someone really ought to do this and you wind up being the someone who ought to. I had moved back to the area and I was actually working for my dad's company, home healthcare and hospice company. And I was bouncing around a little bit and hadn't really found my footing. I really missed real estate development. So for me, it was kind of that I missed this one element. I started volunteering on a lot of boards. Like I was on the downtown management board in Bay City. I was working in downtown Bay City. I was looking at all of these kind of vacant buildings around us. And it was kind of happenstance. It was putting in some of that legwork and doing some leadership programs that gave me the market data where I kind of knew we had wait lists on residential rentals. I knew that those were the opportunities in the marketplace. We had a lot of commercial vacancy. I didn't want to touch commercial early on. It was too risky. So it was starting with that and then just seizing an opportunity in which, you know, my father's company wanted to expand and they were under contract to buy the Bay City Times building. I knew that they needed pretty much the ground floor for meetings and things like that, but that the second floor would be available for potential apartments. And I had just started going back to NYU for my real estate development certificate. So he knew I was pretty serious that I was going to eventually leave his company and and make that leap. Essentially, he had a deal to sell his company. So the entire building would, we had no use for it and we had it under contract. And he's like, well, we should still do something with it anyway. You're a developer, figure it out. And we had to close six weeks later and go for a use variance in order to get apartments on the lower level. And I just dove in the deep end and I figured it out. That is, uh, (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine that's pretty stressful. Yeah, it was, it was great though. I knew that I wanted to do something residential. Downtown was always a focus for me. We didn't have enough options. The wait lists were there. So I probably started at a scale that, you know, when I teach for the Incremental Development Alliance, I don't necessarily recommend people start where I started, but my experience and my knowledge and my background was a bit different. And I had been working in, you know, adaptive reuse and housing and development in my prior life down in Miami, but it wasn't necessarily like a very targeted approach of I'm going to do all these things. I started really refining how I go about finding properties later on. So with my second building, once you kind of can do these adaptive reuse of historic buildings, 
you kind of get a reputation for that. And those start to come to you. Those opportunities start to come to you. But also I know how much that workload is and how long the horizon is on payoff for those. So I had to figure out how to balance my portfolio earlier on for my own success. Of course. And so it looks like, you know, just sounding from this story, but then also knowing some about your own personal story as well, throughout these multiple projects, you've been able to sustain that success in real estate throughout multiple projects, whether it's in this location, that location, this type of development, that type of development. Have you been able to sustain that success over all these different types of projects rather than just focusing in on, all right, so I'm really good at just apartments. No. And then maybe another person's just very good at commercial buildings. Yeah, I'm not the type of person that wants to be put in a box and do just one element. So diversifying my portfolio, having a really strong partner group, peer group, having mentors that really can help guide me in making those decisions, that was all really pivotal in order to define and shape that trajectory. You know, my first, my five-year goal was I just want like five projects in every aspect of the development in pipeline so that I'm I have like a steady workflow. That was my five-year goal. And I hit it in about a year and a half and had to call a business coach and say, now what, what do we do? (laughs) Do you mind talking a little bit about what missing middle housing is and what impacts can it have on a community? Yeah. Missing middle housing is a term that was coined by Dan Perlick of OptiCoast Design. Missing middle housing is anything from really a duplex above a duplex. So a small four unit building up to kind of a traditional main street live work would be the high end. So if you're looking at courtyard style apartment buildings, the little six to eight units that when you go throughout really great communities that were built, especially prior to like 1920, like when the advent of zoning code started around 1920, they started becoming illegal and we started building just more single family housing. So it's these building types that might have six units, eight units, 12 units, maybe they're single story. It's the little cottage courtyards, live works, you know, anything above kind of, you know, brownstones, row houses, duplexes. What gets built today is predominantly single family homes and like a large scale, say 30, 40, 50, 100 unit apartment building, but there isn't the in-between. So that's why we call it the missing middle, that it's, it's really those elements that have been largely outlawed. They're very difficult to finance and they're very difficult to build with zoning and policy changes. And for the last, I would say heavily the last three years, but about the last five years, the work has started to make these legal again across the U.S. and to combat you know, housing prices and surges in the marketplace and offer the diversity of housing stock that our communities lack because the average home size, you know, with homeowners is one to two people. That's 63% of homes, and it's going to surge to about 85% of households will only have one to two people. So we don't need five bedrooms. <laughs> we don't need these, these larger scale single family homes that have been the only thing that you can legally build. So missing middle is that typology that if we can invigorate it back into our communities, it would have a much better diversity of housing stock and selections that people want because otherwise we're losing people to cities and metropolitan areas or historic communities that still offer those. And if we don't offer them, we, we won't have their talent. And kind of within that segment too, what makes a development within this missing middle successful? And so it's one thing just to go build maybe like a, a four and eight unit 
complex at that point, but what makes it go from an ordinary type of development into, you know, an extraordinary type of development? Neighborhood touches a strong value proposition, like off the top of my head, you know, an extraordinary development just takes a person who to really care about it. Let's not make it cookie cutter. Let's not make it basic, but how can it really be curated for that neighborhood and something that will strengthen that neighborhood? Whether you're rehabbing an existing building, now you're changing the way that it's been used perhaps, or you're adding improvements to it and adding some great character. If it's a new build, you know, how does it really complement the neighborhood and that existing urban fabric? So it really takes someone who cares. I like to really curate what I do and think about all the finishes and how they're different. I always say that, you know, I don't do builder basic, meaning I wind up doing a lot of my own procurement. I had a contractor message me yesterday saying, oh, the tile that we wanted for this you know, bathroom is unavailable. And I dropped everything that I was doing and spent an hour finding tile that was in stock, that was going to meet our deadline, that was in state, that I could get someone to pick up and cold called, you know, the pro assistant at a tile shop and just said, hey, I really like this. I need a floor that matches it. It has to be commercial grade. It has to be all these things. This is the square footage I need. This is the surplus. This is the look and the feel of it because we can only control so much. So it's really about maintaining and caring enough to put the extra work in to really amplify what that could be so that it holds its value over time because the numbers have to work, but also you'll be able to keep people there longer if it has great character and really fits the neighborhood well. Definitely. Oh, I think that's a really thoughtful answer. And I think that kind of ties into a recent project that you're working on in Midland that I believe forget where exactly they are in Midland, but I believe that they were affected by the great flood in the middle of 2020. Do you mind touching on that a little bit? Yeah. So Midland County had a dam failure. The Sanford Dam and Edenville Dams were breached in May of 2020. And in July, I had reached out to a local broker and kind of asked him questions about the housing market. And he was like, hey, I've got this other one. You're, you've got to see it. So I said, all right. And went and looked and there is these 10 condos. They're actually the first condos ever built in Midland. And I wasn't necessarily looking for a project or a flip or something like that at the time. I think, you know, I was on a lot of FEMA calls just before that. And we were the first national disaster to occur during a pandemic. So <laughs> we, there were all sorts of like, why would I do this? Like, why take this project on? But they had really unique character and they are missing middle housing. They're like a traditional courtyard design. Dan Perlick actually just released a book called Missing Middle Housing. And I was a few months into the project and received my copy and opened it up. And it's like, oh, courtyard, you know, apartments or condos, courtyard style housing. I was like, I have this exact like kind of a layout that I'm working on. And they were done by Eldon B. Dow and Associates, mid-century modern, really great. They didn't have any of the finishes left. So we're kind of doing a Scandinavian twist on them and making them really just kind of serene and updated as we go along. So I'll finish the second phase of those next month. So we've got about, mm, I want to say four weeks until project closeout. Exciting. That's exciting news. And so why do you think the real estate market is so hot right now? Because I've heard, I'm sure tons of listeners can relate to hearing lots of stories, whether it be mid-Michigan, northern Michigan, southern Michigan, heck, all the United States. 
people are just having trouble trying to find housing and inventory is at historic lows. And so why do you think that's the case? Well, I think it's a, it's a couple of things. Priorities have shifted. Absolutely. Because of pandemic people, you know, maybe still had their income, but now housing was a higher priority than it was before. We also saw with remote work, people moving a lot because they could work from everywhere. So they realized that their priorities changed and shifted in terms of what they were looking for in a home and interest rates are so low. So having low interest rates really gave people, you know, there's been so much talk for years about, well, when are millennials going to finally buy homes? I think the millennials decided to buy homes. (laughs) That really shifted the market, I think, for for a variety of, of reasons. So it's been all over, but I think interest rates are just one of the biggest reasons and priorities that made people choose that the housing market really did get hot. It's unavoidable at this point. Oh, sure. And then especially to just a generational move for millennials being able to enter their, you know, prime home buying, I shouldn't say prime home buying years, but they're starting to enter into the housing market finally. So that's, you make a very good point there. And so switching topics a little bit into money. What was your first memory about money? And then how did it shape your current thoughts on it? Yeah, probably two big early elements. I never really like thought about it, you know, as a kid, other than, you know, your parents give you like a couple dollars to like run up to the grocery store and get yourself some candy on your bike, that kind of thing. But we lived in Freeland when I was growing up and a train derailed in our community. So there was kind of this like whole class action component to it, which we didn't join, but just because we lived there, I remember like my parents were like, oh, well, they settled this class action lawsuit and this, like we received a check as a child. Like my first bank account was for the inconvenience of having a chemical train derail in my neighborhood. And I I think it was like $184. And I was like, well, I'm so rich. (laughs) It was so much money, but it probably also in Freeland. And and I went to a small charter school there near the Titabawasi River and things were different in the eighties in Michigan. And it, it made me an environmentalist. Like I learned early on that there is a tie between money and the environment. And then when it came to investment, my dad did a summer stock market challenge with us where my brothers and I, we each had like a hundred dollars to pick stocks and how many stocks we were going to buy. And we would go and we would look at, you know, the Sunday paper and the whole stock section every Sunday through the whole summer. And we tracked our stocks and we tracked our earnings and there was a winner. So, you know, I have two brothers and I had picked the more conservative, but balanced portfolio. My younger brother, I don't even recall. He was probably a little young. My older brother went for things that were a little bit more risky and a little bit more transportation. And he did the most like stock sales and he won in the end. I was the strong, like steady go. And then he sprinted in and beat me. And it was just interesting because it taught us about risk and investment and choices. And that was something that was really impactful at a young age. I can see how it can probably relay over to real estate too, in some ways and fashions. (laughs) Yeah. I like to invest in things that are a bit more tangible that I can see that I can, I can relate to that. I know how they're functioning that, you know, if there's a business owner on the main floor, I can call them up and say, Hey, how are things? And so switching back to talking a little bit more about your developments, are there some current developments that you're working on presently that you're most excited for? I'm really excited to close out the next phase of the condos and see how those go and get them into new homeowners. It's so much fun to meet new people and to work on this from this side of things. The other one would be we're working on creating a beer garden in downtown Bay City. So we're taking what was kind of dockside kingfish and then the black 
Pearl that sits right there next to Waterfall Park near St. Lawrence Brothers. And we're currently under construction, renovating the property and adding food trucks. And then we'll have other food trucks there. So this is my first time, not just being on the real estate side, but also on the operations side and owning a portion of the restaurant. And that has been a big leap for me. It's very different. If I didn't have really strong partners and colleagues, I don't know that I would take it on. I don't understand restaurant operations, but you know, Dave Dittenberg is a partner. It's, I fully trust him to execute those things. And it's also really interesting because we did a Cuban food truck. We brought our food from Miami. We brought like my husband did the menu and worked with their chef. And that's really exciting for us to be able to have. And then finally getting a shovel in the ground and being able to build 1113 Center. I'm nervous on construction prices right now. It's not necessarily the time to be building new. It's more of the time to be rehabbing. However, I have a great partner that I found finally, and I pulled it back for a while. So being able to execute that and move forward is great. And I have some more that are coming, but they're not public yet. So I can't, (laughs) just those three for now. (laughs) Definitely sound like a lot of work. And so in preparation for this interview, I see that in a recent interview that you mentioned that Leslie Nope is one of your favorite fictional characters. (laughs) Do you mind telling the listeners out there why you picked Leslie Nope? Yeah, I picked Leslie because I think she's so optimistic. And I I love that. I feel like if I were to do something else, if I was in public service, public administration, I would be a total Leslie Nope. <laughs> yeah, I love that, that she's driven and kind of gets through everything regardless. So I had to pull something together. And, you know, when people ask you, if you could be any fictional character, who would you be? You know, the answers tend to be things like, I want to be a superhero or I want to be, you know, Iron Man. I want to be like all of these kinds of things. And I'm like, I'm kind of just (laughs) an awkward person that, that really likes to get things done and believes in her community. And community is such a strong presence for me that like, where else do you have a great role model or leader that's just so community focused? Oh, sure. No, completely. So what hobbies do you like doing in your free time? What is free time? (laughs) I have two kids, so we run around constantly with them, obviously, taking time off to spend more time with them or to hang out with friends. I love to entertain, actually. So socializing, entertaining. My husband's like a great cook, but I'm, I'm an excellent baker. So I find that that always clears my head. I like when things are tangled to have some sort of a process. And of course, you know, it's Michigan. If we can get out into nature, go hiking, do something that's a little bit different. We're always looking for things like that. So really, you know, any opportunity to travel, get outside, exercise when I have free time, or even if I don't have free time, like those are my go-tos. What's your favorite thing to bake? Oh, I don't know if I have a favorite. I know my family has favorite things that I bake. If I'm quick, I'll do like a quick coffee cake or any sort of a cake. The scones and cookies, I'm most known for my cookies. That's what my family always wants. I've gotten to the point where if I ever bake cookies, I do double and triple batches and then just throw them in the freezer so that I can just be like, here, go bake yourself one. Oh, sure. I can, I can definitely see that. And so for those who want to learn more about yourself and your company as well, what are some good resources for the listeners out there? Great ways to get a hold of me or find out more about what I'm doing. My website, jenniferacosta.com. There's a link to a newsletter that I send out twice a month. 
It usually has blogs, different things I'm working on, references of like material that I'm reading. So great things about the marketplace that I'm interested in and what I'm looking at. And I talk a bit about what, you know, my investors and I are looking at in terms of the marketplace and investment within that newsletter. I also have a podcast webcast called The Power of Cute. I have two colleagues, Bernice Radel and Allison Quinlan. One's in Buffalo, one's in Fayetteville, one's an architect, the other, another property manager and developer. And we are all faculty. We're all senior faculty for an organization called the Incremental Development Alliance. So we met because we teach small scale development across the country. And it's an industry where there's not a lot of women in that that industry and talking more to women specifically about how to invest in your community, how to invest in real estate, how to build wealth for yourself. So that tends to be what we speak about. And we speak to different groups all over the country as well. We just did a a talk yesterday for Virginia's Main Street Association, all about housing. And one of our key focuses with that piece is how do you shape your community and how communities should be that quality, that character, that houses and homes can be both functional, they can earn you a living, it's a great investment, and they can be cute. And then one follow-up question for that too, for people who want to learn more about that speaker series that you also do, is it is there a separate resource people should reach out to or is reaching out to you still a good option for that too? Yeah, they can reach out to me and I can connect through the Incremental Development Alliance. We do a series of trainings across the country. So you can also go to incrementaldevelopment.org and see what's happening if you want to sign up for one or have one near you. They do anything from initial talks to workshops, seminars, and then to really get in the trenches. It's like a 12-week boot camp process where you actually walk in with an idea of a property and you walk out with a pitch package and financing in hand. Oh, wow. That's impressive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's an impressive takeaway for that. So thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Mint Money. We love all the feedback that we receive. So please let us know if you have any. Additionally, please follow our podcast. So you don't miss when new episodes drop. Thanks, Jen. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Mitten Money, sponsored by TriStar Trust. Subscribe to the podcast and learn more about how William and the TriStar Trust team can guide your small business at tristartrust.com. <laughs>